0: Weeks on the Ledge is supported by Always Kalanchoe, the website that inspires you to find out about the incredible family of colourful succulents that are just so easy to grow. There's more to Kalanchoes than you may think. From the brightly coloured Flaming Katie to the intriguing green flowered Magic Bells, these little beauties will bloom happily in kitchens, bathrooms, bedrooms, window ledges, or outside on patios during the summer months. And as one of the most popular houseplants, they can have great health benefits too so there are loads of reasons to turn your home into an indoor jungle as we all know on the ledge including fighting tiredness and increasing concentration to improving air quality and as calanchoes are one of the most colorful houseplants they can be a fantastic mood booster too Calanchoes are widely available from florists supermarkets and garden centers nationwide Kalanchoe care tips and inspiration can be found on the Always Kalanchoe website. That's kalanchoe.nl forward slash en. Or follow them on Instagram at Always Kalanchoe. missed my Mirantas. It's episode 90 and I'm feeling fine Ooh, that didn't really work, did it? This week we're taking on the subject of feeding your plants. If you've ever wondered what those numbers on the back of the fertiliser packet mean, or how to tell whether your plant needs feeding in the first place, I have all the answers for you this week. And I went straight to the top for my expert advice. I'm speaking to Lee Hunt, who's the Principal Horticultural Advisor for the Royal Horticultural Society here in the UK. This man really knows his stuff. we're tackling part four of the on the ledge sew along finding out what to do with your seedlings once they've emerged and of course what to do if they don't emerge (coughs) things have gone a little bit crazy on the patreon front this week i've got six new legends stephanie veronica jennifer Caroline, Brandon, and Anna. And my new crazy plant people are Kate and Eric. And a special shout out to Cody and Stephen, who have upped their pledges to my new... $10 a month tier. This is called the On The Ledge Superfans. And if you sign up for this tier, you become part of a very special On The Ledge advisory board for listeners. That means every month I'll get in touch and we'll have a chat about what you think about the show and what you want to see coming up next. So, This $10 tier is really a chance to shape the future of On The Ledge. And when you sign up, you'll also get a personal greeting in the mail from me, including a limited edition postcard. Sound good? Well, you can find all the details in my show notes at JanePerone.com. Before I talk to Lee Hunt about fertilizers, let's squeeze in a listener question. And this question comes from Claire, who wants to know about aquarium soil. She had listened to the James Wong episode, that legendary interlude where I visited James Wong's house, and she was curious to know exactly what kind of aquarium potting mix James used for his terrariums because she's got some Bucephalandra that she's wanting to put into a vase she bought from IKEA. So, I checked with James and he said that he uses a soil-based aquarium substrate Uh, he prefers this to ones that are just gravel that don't contain any nutrients for the plants whereas the stuff that he uses is basically soil baked into tiny granules he says there's a few different brands on the market but he uses one called Scapers Soil by Dennerly I don't know if I've pronounced that right D-E-N-N-E-R-L-E And he uses that one because it's the cheapest he's found by far and produces identical results to the more expensive brands. I'll add that into the show notes for the James Wong episode, just in case anyone's referring back to that. But I hope that helps, Claire, and your Bucephalandras are soon thriving. If you've got a question for On The Ledge, drop me a line. OnTheLedgePodcast at gmail.com And now it's time for part one of my chat on fertilisers. If you don't know your nitrogen from your potash, be prepared to be schooled.
1: Hello, I'm Lee Hunt, and I'm the Principal Horticultural Advisor at RHS Garden Wisley. Lee.
0: Lee, thank you for joining me. When I was planning an episode on fertilising houseplants, I knew I had to get chapter and verse on this, which is why I've come to you, RHS Fount of Information, for this interview, because this is a topic that gets a lot of people very confused. And there's a loads of information out there, and but at the same time, uh, a, an array of different products that you can use, and so many considerations. So I'm hoping that you can clear up a few questions for me and my listeners. Let's start out with a very very basic question though: Why do we need to house fertilise house plants in the first place?
1: Basically, plants, a bit like humans, need food to uh, kind of eat and grow. I think we often think that this is all provided by watering and the compost. But the compost is just something that the roots sit in and the water is obviously what's needed to make the plant plump. So it's the, there's nutrients that are, can be in the soil and water as well that actually allow the plant to have all the right chemicals, which it needs to make new cells, new um, colours, like the, the green pigments in the leaves, and for it to bloom and of course for some plants to fruit as well
0: and what do you say when inevitably i'm sure you get this when you have rhs advise uh, advisory sessions for members when somebody comes up and says well i haven't watered this house plant in 25 years and it's absolutely fine
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: is there is there ever a case where there's house that don't need no don't
1: need feeding I think there are houseplants that don't need feeding. We do find certainly some things, perhaps like cacti and succulents, are well able to cope in very poor uh, conditions, and that's poor soil as well as nutrient levels. But but a lot of plants will do better and will flower better if they have got good available nutrients. And indeed, some will look rather sick over time, um, and that's often shown by yellow leaves or um, other kind of poor stunted growth. If they're not getting what they need, are there any pr-
0: risks of giving too much fertilizer? Do we, you know when you do it, overdoing it as opposed to
1: underdoing it? Yes, there's always risks. Um, it's interesting because uh, certain plants will show this more than others, but as a general rule to start with. It's try and just stick to the instructions on the packet. Most of us will buy a bottle of seed or a packet of seed. They all have those instructions on there for things like house plants. If you mix them up um, to the dilution rate, it says, and then apply them at the frequency, it says, maybe every other week, for example, which will be on the, the packet's instructions, that will mean you'll be safe and there's no way of overdoing it. If you do overdoing it, you can, in theory, get to toxic levels of uh, fertilizer and that would harm the plant's growth. Um, and also this other weird thing that if you put too much on, some of the nutrients start to be locked up where they're, they're not literally available because of the chemical imbalance in the soil. So this is why overall, um, just doing what it says in the packet makes it very simple and straightforward for us for all, not just kind of beginner gardens but for us experts as well as you say just
0: follow the instructions and hopefully you can't go wrong one other thing that lots of people ask about though is the fact that when they're buying potting mixes to replant their repot their house plants then they read on the packet that that contains nutrients so how does that impact on adding extra fertilizer yes you'll
1: usually come across two types of main compost with feed in so Um, Your standard compost um, would say, if we think something like a multi-purpose or houseplant compost, um, that would have enough feed for the plant for about six to eight weeks. After that point, the nutrients are either used or in some cases, because they're soluble with water, they're washed out of the compost after that time. However, you will find there's another range of composts which talk about Um, They have slow-release fertilisers or sometimes you'll see the phrases like season-long food available for the plant. And sometimes those will have the little pellets. uh, So we're talking little balls a few millimetres across, often a kind of buffy, gingery, yellow colour. And they're little slow-release fertiliser pellets. And they will give often up to 24 weeks of feeding. So That obviously saves on the labour of feeding uh, for that period. But after that time, again, you would need to carry on feeding with another houseplant food that you add into your water.
0: I always think it's a little bit unfair that those little balls of houseplant feed uh, consist of of, are in that particular colour. Because sometimes when I've had compost outside, I've had slug eggs that look very much like those little balls. And you don't want to get those two mixed up. (laughs) But um, I've also seen them bright
1: blue ones as well, actually. And there is a tip, you know, the the slug eggs are often... Um, much paler whitey cream in colour and snare legs as well will get dropped in the clusters um, but when you poke them they'll break apart whereas if it happens to be a fertiliser pellet that will be nice and firm and in a, a sort of held together stuck together cluster so yeah if you get unstuck um, that's one way of telling them apart
0: Well, that's handy to know. The worst thing is finding slug or snail legs on houseplants, of course, because that's really not something you want on your indoor plants, but it it does does happen. happen. Um, So let's go drill a little bit deeper into the actual makeup of houseplant fertiliser. What are the main nutrients the houseplant needs? And and
1: does that vary according to the type of plant that we're talking about? It does vary, um, but most plants will need three main nutrients. So we've got nitrogen potassium and phosphorus now nitrogen is to help good leafy growth and good general growth potassium is for flowers and fruit and you'll sometimes hear that referred to as potash and then phosphorus is good for root growth and really all feeds will have some of those main nutrients in different levels um, in them and that will mean that you get good general growth there is you will find that certain seeds like you will hear places like tomato seed and indeed citrus seeds are very high um, in particular elements so citrus we put in a lot of nitrogen because else they go a bit yellow they they need the nitrogen to make good green growth whereas um, things we want to flower well we go for one that's higher in potassium now that if you're often it'll say this on the packet you know for good balance for you good general growth and that will do for most husbands but if you want something specific um to and you're finding say your citrus plant is looking a bit yellow that is where the advantage of going to citrus feed comes in
0: We'll be back with Lee shortly to talk more about fertilizers, but now let's hear from the other companies supporting On the Ledge this week. This week's episode is supported by KiwiCo, bringing hands on projects to your door for children aged 0 to 16. plus. The great thing about KiwiCo is that every crate comes with absolutely all the things your child needs to complete a really cool project that makes learning fun, with no need to rush out and buy craft materials. KiwiCo has hundreds. Hundreds of different crates to choose from, each centred around a different aspect of science, technology, engineering, art, and maths. Visit slash on the ledge and get your first crate free. Just choose your line of crates and get them shipped monthly, and you can cancel or pause your plan at any time. My 11-year-old loved her doodle crepe, which is aimed at 9s to 16s who love to be creative. She got to make a felt succulent garden and model her own clay characters. And she told me, the best thing is, Mum, you don't need to worry about me overwatering it. Change the way your child plays with KiwiCo. That's K-I-W-I-C-O dot com slash on the ledge for your first crepe free. KiwiCo dot com slash on the ledge. And now, back to Lee. We've talked about nutrients, but what are micronutrients?
1: Yeah, they're the micronutrients.
0: When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stengy Law Firm, We Represent Clients in Difficult Family Law Matters Every Day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangey Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangey, 120
1: South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. These students are interesting. So as the name suggests, they're in minute quantities in our houseplant seeds. Um, but they're really important. Things like, things like magnesium at the center of the chlorophyll molecule. And chlorophyll, of course, is the green pigment in plants. So if we don't have the green pigment in the leaves then you start to see that yellowing and similarly with things like iron as well that's part of the making the plant green so a lot of seeds will just have a little bit of micronutrients Um, and when you look on the, the packets you'll often see the the main nutrients so nitrogen Potassium and phosphorus listed as NPK, and it'll give a ratio. And then underneath, you'll see in little writing, um, often you've got these other micronutrients. So, that the first line of manufacturers have often thought very carefully for gardeners and have already included these in. So, uh, again, in most cases, you don't need to worry too much. However, you know, there are a few plants like ericaceous plants, so things like indoor azaleas where they do benefit from a bit of extra iron and magnesium. So occasionally, if they were looking a bit yellow, you might go for um, what they call a sequestered iron. Um, So something like sequestrine or the Vitax iron feed products. And again, just follow the instructions and it will green up those particular plants. But most things don't need that. That's interesting
0: about the ratio thing because I do notice this occasionally on fertilizer packets. You know, it might say 10 10- 2010 or 10 mm. 10 10 so that's referring to the amounts of those three main nutrients that we're talking about so is there a magic number ratio that we should be looking for generally for house plants or
1: or does it vary it's quite interesting so if you buy a product that you uh, take as a granule and you dilute in water on the packet you always see those numbers are much higher than if you buy a bottle of liquid feed That's because that's already been diluted, so it's weaker, so that's why the numbers are lower. So what we're interested in is the pattern of uh, whether, uh, say, the nitrogen or the potassium is higher or lower. So again, for a balanced feed, you'd expect to see that the numbers are pretty similar going, you know, for the three figures of N, P, and K, and that means it's a balanced feed. It doesn't matter if there's a bit of variation, but if it was kind of 10, 7.5, 8, we know that's going to give your has good general growth. If you're really talking about um, boosting, a, say, something like the growth and going back to the citrus, because it's a good example for this one, you'll start to see on those feeds that those figures might be much more Um, extreme so the nitrogen might be 30 but then you'll find the other two figures for phosphorus potassium are much lower so we might see 10 to 15 and it's that difference that that sort of much higher value for the one that tells us that's not a balanced feed and it's going to really promote uh, the growth so to hang up on the individual figures Just look for that general pattern and think whether it's higher in one thing rather than being a balanced feed.
0: Oh, that's really useful because I did have a question from a listener called Sarah. She said she's got plants that call for a balanced fertilizer and she's got some fertilizers that are 10, 10, 10, and others that are 20, 20, 20, 20, and she's got both. I was wondering which does she use? Well, of course, Mm. from what you're saying, she can use either because they're both balanced. And that's probably to do with the dilution. Yes, absolutely
1: right. They're both balanced and it probably is the dilution. And at the end of the day, the plants can't read the labels. So um, they don't read to see whether it's a tomato feed or a houseplant feed or an outdoor container feed. So by knowing these numbers, it does mean often we can cut down the number of individual products we need and just go, oh, well, it's looking generally happy. I'll just give it a balanced feed or yes, it looks rather yellow. I'll give it a high nitrogen feed. So I will look for something that's got a higher overall number compared to the other ones in the NPK. And I'll choose that. Um, So it it does mean that it is personal choice what products you choose. Um, But knowing these facts sort of frees frees you up to make your own choice and often makes it a lot cheaper because you're not buying so many different things
0: oh i see that makes perfect sense Uh, so leading on from that there are a huge number of choices of products on the market just just for houseplants alone Mm. from sort of the slow release granules we talked about to bottles that you stick in the soil and they slowly release to ready diluted feeds are there any is is it really just a matter of personal choice which suits you better or is there any one with a
1: distinct advantage? I think overall, yes, it probably is personal choice. I think to try and make some sense of it, though, I think if you want a long-term feed where you don't have to do have to remember to feed, then mixing in some slow-release granules at the time of planting is a good way. So that's kind of category one. Then I'd have just a general feed for sticking on my houseplants. So... Um, That could be a container feed I use in the garden, something like miracle Grow. It could be a houseplant feed like Baby Bio. Um, It could be a seaweed feed if I was being an, an organic gardener. Those would all give me general balanced feed. So most of the time I'd use that. And then I would tend to only have, think about two specific feeds, and that would be citrus, again, because it's higher than anything else in the nitrogen, if I had citrus plants and then orchid feed as well, because that's the opposite. It's very weak and you don't want to put too many, um, all these chemicals are classed as mineral salts. And if you get too much on your orchids, um, it doesn't do them much good. So that just makes that very easy. But other than that, um, it's hard often to say why you would go for anything more specific, um, unless you're being really keen or um, you want to, take away all the this kind of worry when you're in the, the garden center and go, oh, I've got an African violet, I'm going to go for an African violet seed. And, you know, that that's one way of just taking out confusion and the panic about what do I do if you're thinking, I can't understand all these labels on the hoof, do that. But otherwise, those humane groups to think about,
0: and you alluded there to organic fertilisers. I did get a question from John asking about whether there is an organic option for feeding house plants. Can you just explain for those of us who are not really aware of the distinction here what dist- distinguishes an organic fertiliser from a non-organic
1: one, and and are there options for house plants in the organic world? Yeah, absolutely. So the organic feeds tend to be naturally derived and they tend, I think to give them the sort of most valid organic status, they tend to be approved by the Soil Association. So this is where you will find things like the seaweed feeds um, are bottled products you can buy in garden centres that um, automatically come with that status. They have good micronutrients as well as um, good levels of the major nutrients. The only thing I would say about seaweed is it, it does smell a bit like um, seaweed on a beach af- at the end of the day uh, if it kind of gets a bit cooked in your house. So just be aware that um, it, it's not bad, a bad smell, but it does have a little bit of an odour. Um, you can, of course, consider making your own um, fertilisers as well. And this is where you would take handfuls of something like comfrey and you would soak them in water. Um, and after a few weeks, they'll become stewed and brown and gloopy and then you would dilute that uh, concentrate that comes off at about 10 to one again though because it's rotten organic matter it does come with a bit of a smell so um, it's great for outdoors great for vegetables but I'm aware that some people might not be so keen on that in the, the house but it's a very sustainable organic solution
0: yeah, I remember a few incidents on my allotment feeding with getting my com- comfrey feed ready to dilute and my neighbours sort of looking around and wondering what the horrendous whiff that had been unleashed was and sort of saying, "Don't worry, it's just my comfrey <laughs> feed." So yeah, I can imagine that inside that might be quite intense, but uh, but no, as you say, it's a it's it's a free resource if you can get hold of comfrey which is pretty easy to grow and widely available, then you can make your own uh, you can make your own feed for free.
1: And, you know, that's part of sustainability. We know that the manufacturer of fertilizers is very energy intensive. So as you're saying, don't overfeed, do use them as instructed and that will keep your carbon footprint down as well.
0: Another thing that I've heard people suggest in terms of trying to feed sustainably is putting worm casts from wormeries onto their houseplants. I'm rather wary of that on the grounds that you're likely to introduce uh, accidentally introduce some uh, wormery, uh, wormery worms into your pots. Is is that a sensible idea? It's
1: not necessarily a bad thing because they're still going to be living in there, um, eating decaying organic matter and improving the general soil structure by aerating with their tunnels, and the worm compost itself does have quite a bit of nitrogen in. So it will certainly boost growth. I think the thing just to remember is that if you're putting it on as a top dressing or a layer around the top of your plant, just be careful not to heap it up around the crown of the plant or the base of the woody stem um, because that would potentially rot it. So you want to put it on in a bit more of a donut ring around the top of the, the pot in that, leaving the centre free
0: perfect and once we've decided that we definitely do need to fertilize uh, what's the best way of getting the timing right on this and remembering to do it in the first place and should we
1: be doing it year round or only sticking to the summer months often plants need feed when they're in growth so typically with house plants that's between march and roughly september or early october so that's the key time to feed I think really and then in the winter, um, you don't really need to feed very much because they're not in a lot of active growth. And that's where if they started to show any signs of leaf yellowing or um, they're a bit stunted, only feed at that point. And then that way your uh, feed is going to be used by the plant and not applied at a time when basically it's not used and it's most likely to be washed out um, in between the uh, the watering, washing it, uh, the nutrients out of the compost when it's not going to be taken up.
0: Well, is there anything else, Lee, that we should be thinking about when it comes to fertilising? We've covered loads of great ground there, but is there
1: any other other tips you've got on this front? Yeah, actually, um, it sounds a dog, because it's nothing to do with fertilisers at all, but that's choice of compost. Getting the compost right to begin with is really important because although I'm saying that, It's mainly to support the roots and to provide air and water. Um, The right compost also will hold on to nutrients. So buying a good quality compost to start with, a good houseplant compost, often if if you find it's a bit sticky when you open the bag, just mix in roughly about a quarter of horticultural grit or perlite just to make it a bit more open. Because if that compost gets airless and waterlogged over time, then you will have symptoms that trick you into thinking it's a nutrient problem. So that the two go in hand in hand. Get the right compost, the right seeds, the right location, and they should be brilliant.
0: Lee, that's so wonderful. Thanks so much for your help today. That's all right. Thank you. Nice to talk to you, Jane. It's on the ledge so a long time, and it's part four. And I have some very exciting news. We have germination. I repeat, we have germination. So the seeds I sowed only a week ago are already germinating. Well, at least two of them. So they are my Gibeum pused besan's subspecies shandii have already germinated. If you're not familiar with this particular plant, it grows wild in South Africa, on rocky outcrops and it's a succulent plant with tiny little hairs on the leaves that's what the pubescence part of the name means and once it's mature it produces lovely bright pink daisy-like flowers so that's something to really look forward to and I've also had some signs of life from my mystery mix of greenhouse and conservatory plants from Chiltern Seeds There's a few little tiny seedlings already up on that particular seed tray. So I'm waiting now on the rest of my sowings. And in fact, I've got lots more sewing to do. And you lot have been extremely busy too. Elaine has been posting on the Facebook group about her gerbera, which are now pricked out into individual cells. We'll be talking a little bit more about pricking out shortly. And she's got around 60 plants. So that's a good result, Elaine. And she's also got germination on her coleus and mixed cacti. Also on the Facebook group, Abby is seeking some advice on how to grow the bat flower. That's Taca chantrieri. This is a plant which looks like something, well, it's a kind of plant that I imagine a vampire grows with these incredible flowers that are gothic and dark and dramatic and weird looking Uh, just the kind of thing that I like to grow so she's been asking some advice over on the Facebook group and lots of people have been offering that up over on Instagram two dead clams has got some black velvet rose geraniums Coleus Rainbow Mix and Cactus Mix from Ferrymore Seed. And she's delighted by how quickly the cactus seeds are popping up with the aid of a heat mat. And Andy Schenkel, who's Blandroid on Instagram, has been growing alopolyfilla. And I think this is probably one of the most popular on the ledge so along choices. He says, so far, they've proven very quick and easy to start from seed. And Andy, I'm really wishing that I'd got some alopolyfilla seeds now because I'm feeling very left out. Foliage Queen on Instagram has joined the OTL sew-along. Welcome. She's decided to go with mini greenhouse pots because he was easy and she was feeling lazy i totally understand um she's sowing calathea lutea and also cordyline seeds i really like to know where she got her calathea lutea seeds from because that sounds like a really interesting thing to grow also on the advice front, Kelton on the Facebook group is looking for any advice on growing the gout plant, Jatropha podagrica. This is one of those lovely cordisiform plants with a really fat stem at the base. So if anyone has any advice on growing this plant from seed, please do drop a line to Kelton on the Facebook group. Sasha has been going nuts with her seed sowing. She's sown everything from coleus to cordial to the black bat flower already mentioned to radamacara or the china doll and some saved grapefruit and lemon seeds. So she's really got her OTL sew-along game on. Well done, Sasha. April has been sowing Morning Glory, a Fancy Pants variety from Chilton Seeds. And she is very impressed by the seed leaves or cotyledons of this plant. They're absolutely enormous. She's posted a picture on the Facebook group. She calls them the Frankenstein of seed leaves. That sounds like it's worth growing just to see that. Not much action on Twitter this year. So come on, listeners, use the hashtag OTLSowalong to put up a tweet or two about what you're sewing this year. Because, of course, not everyone's on Instagram or Facebook, and this helps spread the word to a slightly different audience. And in fact, whatever medium you're using, that OTLSowalong hashtag will help me to find your post and give it a mention in the show. Part four is the final official part of the On The Ledge so along in terms of information in the episodes. But I will continue to keep updated with what you're up to. And I'm thinking that maybe we do another recap in a few months to see where everyone's at. So please do continue to share what you're up to. And now let's talk about your seedlings. Let's presume to start with that you've got some germination and your seedlings are already up. If you're looking at your seedlings and thinking, oh, they're looking a bit pale and a little bit tall, and a little bit wobbly. That probably means that they're not getting enough light. This is the moment where you really need to be maximizing the amount of light available to your seedlings. Obviously, the lo-fi way to do that is just to move them to your very sunniest windowsill. If that isn't enough, then you need to be looking at grow lights. You can buy really cheap grow lights, as we've discussed on the show before, from various online sites and from IKEA if you happen to be in the UK and Europe. And these can be positioned pretty close to the seedlings. Unlike bigger plants, they do need a lot of light. So you can have them quite close to the seedling level. Just a few centimetres above will be absolutely fine, but do keep an eye on your plants and make sure they're not getting too frazzled. Another thing you can do to maximise light is do a bit of a DIY job with some cardboard and some aluminium foil, or as you call it in the US and elsewhere, aluminium foil. Sorry, I just must say here, for all clarity, it's aluminium. You're all wrong. It's aluminium. It's got an I in it. It's aluminium Thank you. End of rant. So, yes, you get your foil. Let's just call it foil for the sake of arguments. And that's wrapped around a piece of cardboard and you can make that into a kind of a triptych shape. So you've got three sides to it around your, the back of your seedling tray uh, behind where the light's coming in. And that will actually bounce light back to your seedlings to actually maximise the light that they can be getting. So give that a try if you're worried they're not getting enough light. If your seedlings don't look like that, if they're looking sort of chubby and green and wonderful, then that's all good. It probably means they are getting enough light. Once they've all germinated or you reckon that germination is, is close to three quarters, then that's the time to start thinking about letting a bit more fresh air into that container by lifting off the propagator lid or the piece of plastic or glass or whatever you've had on top to allow some air circulation. Stroking those seedlings every day sounds ludicrous, but stroking those seedlings every day will help to strengthen them up. In nature, naturally, seedlings would be exposed to a bit of a breeze and that in the process of moving those seedlings does strengthen them. And so you can emulate this by giving them a little very gentle stroke. It'll also make you feel better, I'm sure. So you're stroking your seedlings, you're providing enough light. What next? Well, if it's something other than cacti and succulents, which tend to sit, particularly cacti, tend to sit in that tray, seed tray for a long time, uh, maybe up to a year, you will need to prick out your other seedlings long before that because the tray will get overcrowded and they're just won't be enough nutrients or space for those seedlings so pricking out how do you do it the main thing is do not lift your seedlings by the stem, because of course they've only got one stem and if you damage or break that, it's game over for that seedling. So use those cotyledons or seed leaves to lift the seedlings up very carefully or get in underneath them with a little chopstick or a lolly stick or something like that to lift them away and separate them out and then pop them up individually into either a cell system where you've got lots of little cells in one tray or tiny individual pots just treat them extremely carefully though because they are very fragile at this stage because their root systems are really young and tiny if you can take with them when you transplant them a good chunk of soil around that little miniature root ball that will really help them to settle into their new pot well and that's not the last of it because if you've got something like coleus seedlings or maybe the morning glory that we were talking about they will be growing fast and furious so you need to keep an eye on the bottom of the pot and as soon as you see roots poking through the bottom they will need potting on to the next size up this is the point now which you realize you do not have enough room for all your seedlings and start to panic and plan on getting a new home (laughs) try not to worry too much if you can give some away to friends and family that's always a feel-good factor just make sure that you keep the right number for you. That might be one, that might be 50. Depends on how much time you've got and your space that you've got available. That's the beauty of cacti, actually, because they can just sit in that tray for such a long time, they don't take up a lot of room. And now let's discuss what to do if your seedlings are resolutely not germinating? Well it very much depends on what kind of seedlings they are. If you had coleus seedlings and you're telling me that a month after sowing there's nothing happening I would be very much convinced that nothing was going to happen. However if you've got bigger seeds or seeds that need certain conditions then it may well be that a month is no time at all and that you just have to be patient. You can just leave the pot Or tray in position for as long as it takes and see what happens. You might try putting the tray into the fridge for a few days to see if a bit of cold stratification helps the seeds. Sometimes this is the answer for certain seeds to break their dormancy and come into life. Always worth a go if nothing's happened and you don't know what else to try. If they're really large seeds, well, I'm thinking back to the avocado episode. Do you remember that where we were putting the seeds into a plastic zipped bag in a piece of napkin? That takes a long time to break that hard outside layer and the seed to start to grow into active life. So if you've got big hard seeds, it could take a long time. My cardboard palm seeds are not yet germinated, but I'm not too worried about this as I say because I suspect they have a very very hard seed coat so patience is all really that's the main message here don't despair and you know you've the worst case scenario is nothing germinates and you've lost out on the cost of a packet of seeds which is probably anything up to one to five pounds or dollars so really life goes on and (laughs) it's not the end of the world. Oh, and by the way, when you are potting those seedlings on, you probably don't want to use seed mix, but rather some kind of houseplant mix for young plants. Because remember, the seed sowing mix tends to be very low in nutrients. And now that your plants are in active growth, they do actually need more nutrients. I came across a really nice piece from the RHS magazine, The Garden, all about seed sowing and what to do with your seedlings once they've emerged. I'll link to that from the show notes. And it's been really interesting to see that some of you have been trying to grow ferns from spores too, including Abby, who's very excited that her unknown fern spores have started to grow. So that's very exciting. And if you want information on how to do this, I'm linking in the show notes to a very interesting piece which goes into all the detail about how to propagate fern spores, which is a particularly specialist art. Not that hard, but you do need to know what you're doing. So if you're thinking of germinating some fern spores, do check it out. So that's the Sew Along for 2019. Well and truly kicked off. Couple more things to say before I go. Uh, first of all, I had a review on Apple Podcasts by somebody called Anun Moose, who wanted to ask about a hardy version of the spider plant, which you saw listed by one of the big nurseries. Now, I am still doing a spider plant special episode uh, at some point in the future. I haven't quite got that together yet, but I'm not quite sure what noon Moose means by a hardy version of the spider plant. So if anyone knows what noon Moose is referring to, then please let me know. And if you'd like to leave a review for the podcast on your pod app of choice, I would be most grapefruit. And do you live in the Pacific Northwest? Well, if you do, then there is a chance to meet up with other On The Ledge fans coming up on May the 4th and 5th, organised by the wonderful Cynthia B and Sasha. They are putting together a wonderful programme of events over that weekend, including a visit to the Amazon Spheres and Volunteer Park Conservatory, seed swapping and plant shopping. So... Join the Facebook group Houseplant Fans of on the Ledge to find out more about this event and do go along and meet up with other listeners. I am so sad that I won't be there with you guys, but I will be sending some stickers and also recording a special message for those that attend. And I'm sure the event will be an absolute blast. And remember that we are having a UK based on the ledge meetup in September, September the 21st and the 22nd. Hang on. I'm just going to get my diary and actually check that I've got given the right dates there. Yes, I have a paper diary. Yes, I'm living in the past. 21st and 22nd of February. Yes. So this is the British Cactus and Succulent Society meet up in Kent at Lullingstone Castle. I'm going to be there. I hope to see you there. Please make a date in your diary. More specific details of that as I have them. Well, that brings episode 90 to a close. I'm taking a couple of weeks off for Easter, so there won't be a show on April the 12th or the 19th, but I'll be back with a new episode on Friday, April the 26th keep your ears peeled though because i may be putting out a couple of little extra mini tiny episodes about various key terms in the world of houseplant botany just to help myself with my rhs revision so do listen out you never know when a little extra mini episode might drop until then i'll see you on friday the 26th of april plant friends take care bye bye The music you heard in this week's episode was Roll Jordan Roll by The Joy Drops, an instrument, The Boy Called Happy Day Gakana, and Oh Mallory by Josh Woodward. With ad music from the Heftone Banjo Orchestra with their tunes Whistling Rufus and Dill Pickles, all licensed under Creative Commons. See JanePerone.com for details.